Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. We're in the midst of another general election season that will test Donald Trump's impact across the board. Independents turned away from him in 2020, and as criminal investigations widen by the day, those independents are being reminded why they still don't like him. Two-thirds of independents say in a new poll that they don't want the ex-president to run for office again. And though he is not on the ballot this November, Democrats, led by President Biden, have tried to frame the midterms as a choice between democracy and Trumpism, which the president defines as a threat to democracy. Democratic voters, meanwhile, are energized over abortion rights, Trump, and more, 62 days before the final votes are cast. So where does that leave Republicans who are on the ballot? They are stuck right back where they were, answering for the now former president's actions. I, I don't really have any comments on this, this whole in, investigation that's been dominating the news for the last month. And it is dominating the news. And while many Republicans are trying to step out of Trump's shadow or at least ignore it, there are some others that are making moves to potentially run against him in 2024. The invisible presidential primary already well underway with possible GOP contenders making their way to Iowa and New Hampshire. Let me tell you, it doesn't happen by accident. Among them, Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence. Let's talk to someone who served as chief of staff to Pence in the White House, Mark Short. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Thank you so much for being with us. Casey, thanks for having me on. It's great to see you. Um, So, frankly, based on what um, your boss, former boss, current boss, longtime uh, confidant and person you have worked with, it doesn't seem like it's a question of whether he's going to run. He's he's doing all the things you do if you're getting ready to run for president. So what's in the cards? When is the announcement? Oh, Casey, <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's a foregone conclusion on that, to be honest. I think okay. that uh, the way the Pence's have always addressed these questions is to say, you know, where can we serve best? And that's the conversation that they're going to have in prayer and say, where are we being called? But they're also going to say, you know, what are the things that we think we can contribute to this country moving forward? And and they'll look at that. But right now, honestly, if you were to look at the vice president's schedule over the next 60 days, you would see him crossing the country entirely trying to help midterm election candidates in both the House, the Senate. And, as you know, he was a former governor of Indiana and served as a vice president of uh, the Republican Governors Association. So he's uh, he's anxious and trying to help there, too. I, you know, it's been it's been interesting to watch how he has handled his uh, former boss on the campaign trail. There have been instances where they have come in direct conflict just in terms of the candidates they're supporting. Uh, but the former vice president has also been careful not to necessarily pick fights uh, with his former bi- boss rhetorically. I, I'm just curious, what is the thinking behind how he carves out a lane for himself in the Republican Party when the former president is so front and center? Oh, I don't know that he's looking to carve a lane, Casey. I think the way he looks at it is he's always been a consistent constitutional conservative. I think he's somebody in the, you know, when he rose up the ladder. Does that imply that Trump isn't? No, I'm telling you what Mike Pence is. And I think if you go back to the time when he was a House member and John Boehner asked him to serve in leadership, it's because during the Bush years, when there was a lot of expansive spending, 
Mike Pence is only one of a handful of Republicans who was consistent in voting against Republican priorities like Medicare Part D expansion, like the Wall Street bailout, like No Child Left Behind. He was the consistent conservative calling Republicans back to their standard. And that's what he's always been. And that's what he's going to continue to be. What is your sense of how the raid on Mar-a-Lago, the search of the, the former of the former president's home in Mar-a-Lago, how has that impacted the behind the scenes thinking for Republicans who are thinking about challenging him? Because, I mean, <laughs> the Trump team blasted out today uh, a several weeks old story about how DeSantis fell in polls against Trump uh, because this raid happened and it energized Trump's base. Well, I think there's truth to that, Casey. I do think that it energized a lot of uh, Republican supporters back behind Donald Trump because I think they felt like um, there had been an out-of-control state here. And, that, and what I mean by that is, think about it. The first action the former president had with the FBI was Jim Comey actually lying to him and coming in during the transition and saying, you're not a target of investigation, when clearly he was. And the FBI knowingly passing around a steel dossier that they knew was false. And so there is enormous skepticism among a lot of Republicans about Department of Justice and the FBI. And so I do think that that probably rallied a lot of people around him. Having said that, case, I think as we head to the midterms, we're going to be more successful if we're talking about Joe Biden. We're going to be more successful if we're talking about crime in Joe Biden's America in our inner cities, about a, a, a catastrophe at our border with 200,000 border crossings each and every month. If we're going to be talking about this idiotic energy policy that seems to be something we're trying to import from Europe that's going to leave a lot of Americans without the energy that they need in pursuit of a green energy policy that uh, is providing subsidies to people who can afford $65,000 electric vehicles. That's how we're going to win in the midterms if we're talking about Joe Biden and it's a referendum on him. That seems tough, though, in light of, and, and look, I take your point about some of the skepticism, especially among the former president and his closest aides, about how things were handled in the beginning. However, you fast forward to now, I mean, you've seen the pictures of the classified documents that he took with him. I mean, Mike Pompeo, who also is making some of the similar moves to potentially run in 2024, he said those documents should be returned. Um, do you agree with that? I mean, it seems problematic, and it seems to me independent voters think it's problematic. I think for a lot of us who had concerns about Hillary Clinton transferring email, classified emails to a personal server... I mean, she um, would say would that have, nothing she had was classified. Which I think Jim Comey himself is... Repudiated and he did. He, then it was changed and, back. Well, but I, I think that uh, this, for the same those of us to be consistent, I think it's also questionable as to the documents that the president has in an unsecure place at Mar-a-Lago. So, yeah, I would certainly share some of, some of that criticism. But I mean, do you think he should give them back? There's a lot more we don't know at this point, Casey. And I do think there's an extra burden on DOJ and FBI to be transparent because of that history. Let me ask you about uh, Bill Barr, um, the former attorney general whom you know from working with him in the administration. Um, he's come out pretty strongly, actually, in the past couple of days. I think a lot of us who have covered him in, here in Washington for the past couple of years have been surprised. Now, he did raise concerns about the possible indictment of a former president, but he's been very critical. Were you surprised by that? Why do you think he's had this change of heart? Yeah, because I'd be a little bit surprised because I also think that the, uh, the efforts here seem rather unprecedented. And that, what I mean by that is that it seemed like there could have been still a, another way to get those documents without a raid on a former president's home. Having said that, I think Bill Barr came back to serve in Donald Trump's administration because of his concerns about the politicization of the FBI and DOJ. And so I take I think he's a he's a very credible um, person to, to, to give commentary on the subject. One of the other things that's going to come up here as we head into this midterm season, and I take your point, Republicans want to focus on other things, but we are going to see more January 6th committee hearings. Um, Congressman Raskin, who's a member of the committee, was out talking about this over the weekend. Take a look, and then I'm going to ask you about it. 
Vice President Pence was the target of Donald Trump's wrath and fury in effort to overthrow the election on January 6th. The whole idea was to get Pence to step outside his constitutional role and then to declare unilateral lawless powers to reject electoral college votes from the states. So I think he has uh, a lot of relevant evidence, and I would hope he would come forward and testify. So he said he hopes that he would come forward and testify voluntarily. Is that going to happen? Casey, I think that uh, there'd be a lot of concerns with that. I think that the events of January 6th and the aftermath have been pretty public. And in fact, despite the pressure campaign that Congressman Raskin talks about, Vice President Pence was pretty open in writing an open letter to Congress and the American people explaining the decision-making he went through and the decisions he reached on January 6th. And even though there were lawyers advising the president that this extraordinary power that had never been used in 250 years of our republic somehow had magically been found, and they were conversely saying they would never want Kamala Harris to unilaterally be able to choose not to accept electoral votes from Texas or Alabama, um, the, the vice president was very open in his letter. Yeah. And, then, and then a couple weeks later, there was another controversy about the 25th Amendment, and he wrote another very open letter to the American people and to Congress about it. And so I do think there are very significant constitutional concerns about, at this point, you know what the vice president did, you know the pressure campaign, you know his explanation for what decisions made. If they're asking for personal conversations between the president and the vice president, that, I think, has executive privilege. And I think Democrats should be careful what they wish for, because if they go down a path of subpoenaing the vice president... It's not president, just Democrats, though. It's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. As Maybe I you said, don't count them. As I said. <laughs> if they go down that path, Casey, I think that you're going to have the reality that, you know, um, Republicans will soon be taking over the House. Do they want Republicans to be subpoenaing Kamala Harris? And you might say, well, that's different. She's an incumbent vice president versus a former vice president. Also, as a former vice president in the Oval Office, who I think a lot of Republicans are anxious to know about Hunter Biden's $50,000 a month contract for Ukraine when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. So I think this is a very dangerous path. So do you expect a subpoena? I am, I'm not going to anticipate one way or the other what the committee is going to do. And I think that'll be a decision if it, that comes between the vice president and the legal counsel. Um, I did speak to Liz Cheney uh, a few weeks ago. Take a quick look at what she had to say about the vice president, former vice president. Vice President Pence um, was um, a hero on January 6th and that it's very clear that there was tremendous pressure from a number of different places on him uh, and he, he did his duty and he didn't succumb to that pressure. And if he had succumbed to that pressure, things would have been very different. Do you want praise from Liz Cheney like that? I, I, I think that Liz Cheney has actually a very strong conservative record. I think she's she's um, has a lot of great service to our country. I do have concerns about this committee, though, Casey. I do think it's a partisan committee. I think its makeup is partisan. And I don't think there's enough conversation about the fact that the very person chairing the committee is somebody who voted against certification in 2004 when there was no evidence of voter fraud nor are there other members of that committee who also voted against certification in 2016 when there was no evidence of fraud against in the, in the Trump-Pence victory. So I have a lot of concerns about the committee. Having said that, I think that uh, she has served our country very admirably in a lot of ways, and I appreciate her conservative voting record. She certainly thinks very highly of the former vice president's actions on January 6th. So there is that. Mark Short, thank you very much Thanks, for your Casey. time. Thanks we really appreciate the conversation. We have much more to come on the interesting, shall we say, evolution of Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr. He is not dodging questions about the classified document scandal. Instead, he's leaning into them. We'll tell you why that's news in and of itself. That's next. 
So at one point, former Attorney General Bill Barr was one of Donald Trump's staunchest allies, shielding the former president from legal scrutiny and defending some of the president's most controversial decisions. But since Trump's refusal to accept election defeat, things have apparently changed. Barr has emerged as one of Trump's most notable critics. He has appeared on Fox News three times in the past five days to criticize Trump's legal defense in the Mar-a-Lago search. And today, he said this about the Justice Department's case against the former president. I think, you know, as I've said all along, there are two questions. Will the government be able to make out a technical case? Will they have evidence by which that, w- that they could indict somebody on, including him? And I, that's the first question. And I think they're getting very close to that point, frankly. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, there's another question is, do you indict a former president? What will that do to the country? What kind of precedent will that set? Mm-hmm. Will the people really understand that this is not, you know, failing to return a library book, that this was serious? And so you have to worry about those things. And I hope that those kinds of factors will incline the administration not to indict him, because I don't want to see him indicted. Joining me now, former federal prosecutor Shan Wu, CNN political commentary commentator Bakari Sellers, and CNN political commentator and the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. Uh, Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, Shan, let me just start with you on the legal stuff here. Um, I I thought it was striking to hear Barr say, well, I think the DOJ probably has evidence to indict at this point, or at least they're very close. I mean, what do you think is behind the sudden shift? Well, what's behind the sudden shift, I don't think is anything illegal. I mean, most people are agreeing that there's a certain critical mass of evidence here that makes Trump uh, face some serious exposure. I think what's behind the shift is it's just self-serving. I mean, he wants to point out that if he was leading the OJ, maybe he would have moved faster. I might agree with that. Maybe they should have moved faster on this. And he's also, at the same time, supporting his ideas of protecting presidential power. I mean, I think it's kind of funny for him to say that, you know, Garland's going to exercise prosecutorial discretion when he himself exercised it so blatantly to distort the Mueller report. But he's right. It's a very much a question of discretion for Garland, and that's what it's going to come down to. John, what do you think's going on? You're a very sharp political observer of, <laughs> of folks like Bill Barr, who's been around Republican politics a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... it's, it's uh, Bill Barr, who I've met a couple times, you know, and uh, he is... He was never quite the, the Trump sycophant that he was portrayed by a lot of his critics as. He was... He's, he's one of these guys who comes by, he came by his support for Trump honestly because of his, his dislike of the left and his belief in sort of presidential prerogatives and presidential power and, and his own theories about the Constitution. I disagree with a lot of his positions on very, or tactical decisions on a lot of things. But his book was quite critical of Trump. Mm-hmm. The things he's said over the last year have been quite critical of Trump. And I think on this, I think, I think what he's doing here is he's just telling the truth as he sees it, which is so strange um, in the current political climate that we all have to think it's too clever by half. There must be something else going on. Bakari, what's your take? First of all, I've never met Bill Barr. uh, But I can tell you that I think all three of us agree that he does remain steadfast in one thing, and that's the principle of protecting presidential power and presidential authority. I mean, I think we can all agree on that, that that is where he's coming from, and that's where this this, um, kind of refreshing view emanates from what most people have a problem with and just to just make it as simple as possible for people when you have Merrick Garland and many others who echo that term like you tell your children no one is above the law 
But then you see, uh, not once but twice, Bill Barr, the same person, when he talks about the uh, Mueller investigation and he talks about the obstruction of justice, and the evidence is pretty clear and is laid out pretty clear that there is a case to charge someone with obstruction of justice. That does not happen. And then you heard in his statement tonight even, or today even, uh, that the question should be, should a president, former president, even if the evidence rises to beyond probable cause, should a former president be indicted? Yeah. For me, I, I don't know how Jonah feels. I don't know how you feel. But for me, the answer should be yes. Uh, now, the politics aside, yeah. whether or not you can get a jury to, in, to, to find him guilty is another question. But the three of us will be indicted by now. Well, at least I So your answer is the same as the answer Liz Cheney gave me when I interviewed her about this, because my question has been... You're trying to make sure I never win a Democratic (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I apologize. Um, Although there are a lot of Democrats lately who are fans of Liz Cheney, actually. Um, But Jonah, what's your take on that, the politics of this, what it would mean? Um, I mean, is there, in your view, a valid reason to think about that, or is that just a a really bad idea? So first of all, I I actually think it's never been true that the president isn't... uh, Above the law, below the law is the wrong, I think, the wrong framing of it. You hear it all over the place. It is, um, there's just a different standard for presidents. The sitting, the stated position of the Justice Department is you can't indict a sitting right, president. This guy's right? not a sitting president No, I understand. Anymore. But my only point is that we just treat presidents differently in this country in all sorts of ways. Um, personally, I've been meaning to write this for a while now. I think the ideal scenario would be for the Justice Department to uh, indict Trump and then for President Biden to take one for the team and actually pardon Trump on the condition that he never run for office again. That would hurt him politically. It would, be self- it, would, it would be patriotic and good for the country. It would be a profile on courage. Democratic Party would hate him for it. <laughs> Republican yeah. Party would hate it. But you, I, I totally respect the position that Trump should be indicted and that the president shouldn't be above the law. But let's not kid ourselves that doing so is a drastic thing politically that will have bad, to, to his, bad consequences. To his point, though, one of the things that, if we want to look back at history, the failure to actually indict Richard Nixon is why we're here and the why we have this lawlessness and recklessness. So if we're going to have a legal standard, we need to abide by it. And I, 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 we're talking about two different things. Whether or not Joe Biden pardons Donald Trump is truly a political question, which I actually think he may consider doing, but he should be indicted. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea is if you're too concerned about looking political as a prosecutor, you become political. And Barr, of course, very political prosecutor. And for him to sit there and say, you know, you should be concerned about what happens in the country, et cetera, that's not what Garland should be concerned about. I mean, if he's true to his word, he should be concerned about following the evidence and the law. All right, Shan Wu, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Bakari, Jonah, you guys are going to stick around. Thank you. Next, a long White House tradition was broken during the Trump years, another long White House tradition. But today, it returned along with a warm welcome for former President Barack Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama. They finally had their official portraits unveiled. I want to thank Sharon Sprung for capturing everything I love about Michelle. Her grace, her intelligence, and the fact that she's fine. (laughs) See it for yourself, coming up next. Barack and Michelle, welcome home. Welcome home. A warm and emotional reception today for former President Obama and the former First Lady back in the White House for the first time since they left 
in 2017. The occasion was the unveiling of their official White House portraits, a long-standing bipartisan tradition that hasn't been celebrated in a decade. The last time was back in 2012, when Obama hosted President Bush 43, of course, the opposite party. President Trump, in contrast, hosted no White House events for Obama, who was his predecessor. Now, portraits of the first black president and first lady will be on display in the hallowed halls of the White House alongside past presidents. Even the style of their portrayals, making history by breaking from the past with their contemporary look. For Obama, that meant choosing artist Robert McCurdy and hyper-realism. What I love about Robert's work is that he paints people exactly the way they are, for better or worse. And Robert also paints his subjects looking straight ahead. So it feels like you're face-to-face forming a connection. And what I want people to remember about Michelle and me is that presidents and first ladies are human beings like everyone else. We have our gifts, we have our flaws, and when future generations walk these halls and look up at these portraits, I hope they get a better, honest sense of who Michelle and I were. And I hope they leave with a deeper understanding that if we could make it here, maybe they can too. As for the former first lady, she chose artist Sharon Sprung, who depicted her in a modern strapless gown, Jason Wu, seated in one of the most formal rooms in the White House. It's something that Michelle Obama says she never could have imagined would be part of her story. While calling out Trump without naming him, Mrs. Obama underscored the value of tradition. Whether it be the peaceful transition of power or the unveiling of White House portraits, she says it's these traditions that lay the foundation of our democracy and the promise that comes with it. Traditions like this matter, not just for those of us who hold these positions, but for everyone participating in and watching our democracy. You see the people, they make their voices heard with their vote. Um, We hold an inauguration to ensure a peaceful transition of power. And once our time is up, we move on. And all that remains in this hallowed place are our good efforts and these portraits, uh, portraits that connect our history to the present day, portraits that hang here as history continues to be made. So for me, this day is not just about what has happened, uh, it's also about what could happen. Because a girl like me, she was never supposed to be up there next to Jacqueline Kennedy and Dolly Madison. Uh, She was never supposed to live in this house, and she definitely wasn't supposed to serve as First Lady. All right, coming up, we're going to go beyond the portraits and look at the relationship between the 44th and 46th presidents. That's ahead. And we'll look at an announcement tonight in the most closely watched Senate race in the country. We'll be right back. President Obama following up his trip to the White House today by hitting the campaign trail. A source tells CNN that he's expected to campaign for a number of candidates this fall, not just congressional candidates, but also some down ballot. Joining me now is Jonathan Martin, national political correspondent for The New York Times, and Bakari Sellers and Jonah Goldberg are back with us as well. Um, Jonathan, let me start with you. I mean, the relationship between President Obama and President Biden is certainly an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, the idea that they're both going to be out on the trail, also pretty interesting to me. What do you make of what tension is there and what can Obama do on the trail? Well, 
Thanks for having me. Alex Burns and I wrote about their relationship uh, in our book, This Will Not Pass. And uh, <laughs> oh my it's important. Goodness. No, it's important. <laughs> See, we're talking about this before the, the break. Peanut gallery over, over there. Is it available in bookstores? In Amazon.com. Okay, all right. Look, the idea that they had a personal relationship about Biden and Obama was always overstated. Look, every pick for VP going back throughout the history of the country is a political choice. It's done for political purposes. And that was certainly the case with Joe Biden in 2008. And so, look, I think they developed more of a personal rapport over the course of those eight years in the White House, Mm -hmm. but it was always more transactional than it was portrayed in the press. And I think we've seen the reality of that since Biden became president, because yes, there are still tensions. I think Biden um, has, has sort of liked the fact that he has the potential, at least in his mind, to be a bigger sort of figure on policy uh, than potentially Obama. And he's mentioned that in private, <laughs> as we report in the book. And Obama himself has been frustrated, I think, by some of the coverage of Biden as being more transformational than him. Because to Obama, yeah. uh, what is missed in the coverage is that when he was president of Obama, there were a dozen Joe Mansions in the Democratic <laughs> Party. It was a more conservative caucus that Obama was dealing with 15 years ago. Sure. Um, so... Bakari, just before we move on to some other politics, I just want to underscore that the, the historic nature of what we saw at the White House um, today. I mean, what does it mean to you to, that the first black president's going to be hanging on the halls uh, of the White House? And, you know, the fact that, that Trump ignored it for all this time. I mean, I don't really care about Trump. I think that just kind of, you know, it, it disregard him for the purposes of the moment. What you saw today from uh, the former first lady wearing braids as she gave that eloquent speech about her not supposed to be, be there. Um, the love that those two um, share, the admiration, him saying one thing about Michelle is that she's fine. You know, having uh, just them uh, speak about not just what this country was or what it is, but what it can be. For me, I think it's amazing to see uh, that this couple, this very highly educated, successful couple that rose to the highest office in the land, um, the definition of black excellence, when they rose to power in 2004, and then again became president in 2008, how those eight years could lead to so much white grievance politics. And that's what we saw, the rise of the Tea Party, et cetera, in 2010. And it's just fascinating that we were able in this country, and historians will one day look back at it, to go from this figure to Donald Trump uh, in one election. And I think that that is what you saw on display. You saw what this country can be uh, versus that backdrop. Well, certainly, um, you know, and this actually turns us straight to midterm politics, because at the end of the day, Trump only got one term. You are correct that obviously he played on all these grievances. He continues to do it, I mean, to this day. Uh, But a lot of Republicans in elected office, I think, are really wishing he would just go away. And (laughs) Jonah, you mentioned uh, this. You wrote a column yesterday, um, and it's titled, Sure enough, Trump is sucking the air out of the GOP's midterm momentum. Um, The Washington Post recently noted there are Republican campaigns who are leaning into Trump to boost GOP turnout, though, getting him to be more engaged. Um, Walk us through kind of like what you think about how the president is interacting in this in this midterm cycle. And I mean, is this a can't live with him, can't live without him kind of situation? Yeah. So first of all, just on the the portrait part, if I were president, I would not 
commission a hyper-realist painter, I would go more like Jackson Pollock okay. or something to obscure no, this Notes for history. Mess. Jonah Goldberg becomes <laughs> um, president. Right, right. Or Picasso. <laughs> Jackson right, We're writing that. <laughs> but, uh, brought back. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I, I actually think there's something of a symbiotic, uh, codependent relationship between the current president and the former president. In fact, in the fact that Joe Biden uh, very much wants to make the race about Donald Trump. Donald Trump very much wants to make everything about Donald Trump. It serves both of their purposes. It sucks all the oxygen out of the GOP primaries. And the problem is, you know, going back to 1862, there have only been three times where the out party didn't win seats in um, a midterm election. And, uh, um, and that a big part of the reason for that is that when you're the out party, you get to make it just you can be all things to all people. And you can make the election a it's referendum. All it's all about them. They're doing it wrong. We're backseat drivers. We would drive better. And the controversies with Trump and his role in the thing reminds people what it's like to feel like when he's president, and it makes it a choice rather than a referendum. And look, the clip that you showed earlier about Mitch McConnell doing the no comment that's been sort of all over the Internet today, if you watch that clip a second time, you'll see that he's actually, in McConnell's very cryptic way, He's venting as he says what he says. He's a hundred percent. He says, uh, "I have no comment on this story that we've all been watching now for the (laughs) last month. (laughs) It's been dominating the news for the last month. I mean, that's sort of his elbow at Trump without actually doing it in a way that's going to extend the story too too much. But no, that gets to the heart, I think, of the frustration right now on Capitol Hill." Um, in the GOP, who see a golden opportunity to take back at least one chamber, if not both chambers of Congress, if they can make this about the party in power rather than a choice election based upon them and their former president. But that ship has sailed because one of the things that happened early on was no Republican stopped Trump, or if they could stop Trump, from weighing so heavily in these Republican primaries. And so now you have candidates like Blake Masters. Now you have Mastriano. Now you have Herschel Walker. Now you have these candidates who, although some of them may win, but now you have these candidates who uh, pose a significant problem to winning independent voters or the middle of the state. Post-Dobbs, it also doesn't feel like Republicans aren't driving policy, right? Right. The the post-Dobbs climate... You have state legislatures doing things about abortion yeah. that just makes it feel like Republicans right. are not backseat drivers, that they're actually yeah. making and, policy. And, and the candidates that Bakari just mentioned, this is an important point, the candidates Bakari mentioned reflect what I call the demand side problem that, that the GOP has. A lot of their voters in these primaries want That's Trumpy, want Trumpy yeah. and candidates. It's not that Trump is sprinkling magic Trump dust uh, and like blessing these candidates. It's the, the 40 plus percent of voters in these primaries prefer a Trumpian candidate, and that can be a lot of votes in a multi-candidate uh, primary. And so that's why you have some of these candidates now uh, on the ballot struggling, right. because it's what their voters want. And that's the longer-term challenge, Casey, right. for the GOP. is isn't just Trump. It's what their voters want. Yeah, in some ways they've awakened a dragon. And of course, Mitch McConnell knows this better than anybody else. It's part of that frustration you saw. All right, Jonathan Martin, one bestseller. Bakari Sellers, two bestsellers. And Jonah Goldberg, three bestsellers. Oh, well, <laughs> Thank you all for being here tonight. We really this appreciate it. This will not pass. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know which one. To, to Everyone's read. arguing about who has the most bestsellers here at the table. Uh, coming up, the battle Americans are fighting for one of our most basic needs. Can you drink out of the water fountain in school? No, I will die. 
Sarah Seidner is in Jackson, Mississippi, getting answers from the new head of the EPA in a continuing crisis that goes well beyond the South. That's next. In Jackson, Mississippi today, EPA Administrator Michael Regan vowed that the Biden administration will do everything it can to help a city struggling with what he called a public health, social justice, and economic crisis. Regan visited the water treatment plant at the center of this problem with local and state officials, including Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves, who offered this update. We are doing uh, investigative testing um, on, on the water. If you're producing perfectly clean water out of the facility, it typically takes about three days to get um, the entire system flushed out with the water uh, that was already in the system. I do think as you get uh, into the weekend and into ne- early next week, uh, we will have a better idea of um, the, the samples and, and what the quality looks like. CNN senior national correspondent Sarah Seidner is in Jackson tonight. Sarah, the governor went on to say that while those early tests are positive, they're just not where they need to be. And that means that this problem continues for so many people. You spoke with a father and a son who are among those impacted. Yeah, and not just a father and son. We spoke to a lot of different residents about what this has meant to them. Really, they are furious that in the capital city of Mississippi, in the United States of America, they do not have clean drinking water coming out of their taps. E is for egg. Charles Wilson III is a single dad who wants nothing more than to protect his children. He helps with homework and takes part in playtime. A bear. I love him to death. He never thought the biggest danger to his little boy would be the tap water flowing through the pipes of his hometown, Jackson, Mississippi. Can you drink out of the water fountain in school? No, I would die. A six-year-old worrying about death over the government's failure to ensure safe drinking water. I mean, do you have a heart? What God you serve? It's an insult. The capital city of the state of Mississippi. And this is what we go through. You don't have clean drinking water? No. Wilson uses bottled water for drinking and boils water every day, multiple times a day for everything else. This time, it was a flood that took out the water treatment plant where pumps had already been failing, leaving 150,000 plus residents without safe drinking water. Do you remember when the water seemed to go bad here in Jackson? Well, really about 10, 12 years maybe in that area. More than a decade. Yeah, it's, it's really got worse. But families in Jackson say the water crisis in the capital city of Mississippi started long before the emergency that got the country's attention. Even the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency knows that. Just this year alone, we're going to make over $10 billion available uh, for investments in clean water. It sounds like an emergency, like the National Guard should be in here, like the, the Army Corps of Engineers should be in here, that everyone should be trying to make sure that the kids of this community have drinking water. Where is everybody? You know, we're here now. Uh, I think you've seen a federal, state, and local presence here. Uh, You know, the last time I visited Jackson, the community member said, we don't want any more finger pointing. We just want our government to work. 
people are waiting for that tap water to be clean and safe. How long do they have to wait to have clean drinking water? You know, the honest answer is we didn't get into this situation overnight. We're not going to get out overnight, uh, but we're working around the clock as quickly as possible to provide some stability to the system. That, again, is why this administration fought so hard for the bipartisan infrastructure law. And that $50 billion, historic investment, it will go a long way in rebuilding the infrastructure and rebuilding the uh, trust in this country. The EPA administrator knows that trust is going to be hard to come by. Because even when Jackson said the water was safe over the years, it wasn't. My son has ADHD, he has emotional and developmental disorders, and he's not caught up with his class. Jackson had a number of violations from the Environmental Protection Agency over decades. So 10 months ago, attorney Corey Stern sued on behalf of hundreds of Jackson residents who he says are suffering the effects of lead in their tap water. Your heart goes out to them because we've experienced that. No one understands the suffering of people in Jackson better than these folks, residents of Flint, Michigan. In 2014, their city changed water sources to save money, but failed to treat or test it properly. The result? Deadly bacterial contamination and lead poisoning of its residents. Well, the problem for kids especially is they are developing and they are growing. So you don't know the effects that the lead poison that they experience today is going to have on them in five years, 10 years, 20 years. So why does this say The Bell family says high lead levels in their seven-year-old grandson resulted in developmental issues. We're not the only family that still suffers from rashes. Adults aren't immune either. Their next-door neighbor testified before Congress about Flint's wanton negligence and lies. We started experiencing hair loss. We started experiencing rashes. And... Um, blood pressure issues, so we were being told everything's fine. Eight years on, Flint is using a different water source and replaced many pipes. But she and her neighbors still cook with and drink bottled water, using upwards of 10 cases a week. Do you drink out of your tap water? No, I'll never drink the water again. Flint, like Jackson, is predominantly black with a low tax base, which experts say plays a significant role in their water woes. What does justice look like to you? Well, we know they're not going to tell the truth. We know that they're not going to admit. So the only thing I can think of is legal action. The children of Flint won a $626 million settlement over their poisoned water. But the people of Jackson are still waiting just for clean drinking water. Never mind justice. What kind of justice can they get? There is no justice for the people of Flint or the people of Mississippi when it comes to fixing what has happened to their children's brains. And I'm so happy that the spotlight is on what's going on in Jackson because I'm not the only parent who has a child that has suffered because of this water. Such an important story. Sarah, the issue of unsafe water it simply isn't limited to Jackson, as bad as it is there. How big is this problem? You know, we talked to an expert, someone who had studied the safety of water across the United States, uh, Maura Allaire with UC Irvine. She's associate, produ- uh, uh, sorry, associate professor. She said that 7 to 8 percent of the population is living with unsafe water in this country. That's about 20 million Americans. And so we put that to the EPA administrator, who we met here in Jackson today, And he confirmed that that sounded about right and that that needed to be taken care of as fast as possible. 
that's wild, 7 to 8% of the entire country, the population of the entire country. Yeah. Um, have officials offered any timeline to come back to Jackson for when people there will finally be able to drink water out of their taps? This is what has people so frustrated because the residents here say, don't let what you're hearing from officials fool you. We've been dealing with boiled water notices long before this flood ever showed up and long before America ever saw what was happening to us here in Jackson, Mississippi, the capital of the state. They are furious that they are not getting any kind of idea as to exactly a timeline as to when they're going to be able to trust the water coming out of their taps. And at this point, because they have been going through this for so many years, I think that trust has been eroded, and that trust might be eroded indefinitely, just like when they're going to get clean water. I I mean, I was just going to say, it it seems like the kind of situation where ultimately, like the people you spoke to in Flint, the trust is just permanently broken uh, between uh, many, between these people uh, and, and their government. Sarah Seidner, thanks very much for your reporting tonight. Thank you so much for watching with us tonight. I will be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.